0: That song was based on, on the writings of a group of people called the Puritans. They were Christians back in church history and they were really experts on the need of our souls, the needs of our souls, which is reflected in that beautiful song. And one of the things they were particularly concerned about and quite expert in was, how can you be sure that you're a Christian? How can you know for sure you're a child of God, safe in his hands? And that's our subject this evening, so come along this evening. To find out that all-important question, how can you be sure? You're safe in God's hands, you're a child of God. But this morning we're considering this. Do you want to know God's will for your life? I would have thought you do, don't you? Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, this morning I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12 to find it out. Romans chapter 12. As usual, there are page numbers on the pink sheet to help you if you've got a church Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. (laughs) Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Now that introduces the rest of the chapter. Because it goes on in the rest of the chapter to tell you what God's will is for you. That's what we're going to be considering. But it doesn't tell you who you should marry, or where you should live, or what job you should do, because in the Bible, God's will means this, the way he desires you to live. And he's less interested in where you live than in how you live. He's less interested in who you marry, although he is interested in that, but he's less interested in that than in how you treat the person you're married to. He's less interested in the job you do, although he is interested in that because don't go off and become a bookmaker and encourage gambling. But he's less interested in what job you do than in how you act in that job. And so this morning we're going to see how does God want you to live? And we're seeing this from verses 9 to 12, sorry, 9 to 13. So we heard verses 3 to 8 last week and now we're on to 9 to 13 this week. But before we get into those verses, I want to tell you about a camp for teenagers that I went on quite a long time ago. And at this camp for teenagers, one of the speakers, he was quite a big character, quite a jovial character. And he had this talk where he had two pictures. He had a picture of a horse and he had a picture of a cart. And he had there the horse in front of the cart, and he showed it. And that's how it should be, shouldn't it? That's right, isn't it? And then he put the cart before the horse. It's going to come up there in case any of you are unfamiliar with the phrase, don't put the cart before the horse. He said. And then he showed the cart put before the horse. Is that right? No, that's not going to work, is it? Don't put the cart before the horse. And his talk was about this. Don't do good works in order to become a Christian. You need to be made a Christian so that you do good works. Don't try to live the Christian life before you've been given the Christian life. You need to put your trust in Jesus so you're given the Christian life and then live it. Then do the good works. Trust Jesus to save you and then live differently. And he kept putting up the pictures. Here's the horse in front of the cart. That's right. Now here's the cart before the horse. That doesn't work, does it? Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't try to live the Christian life before you've been given the Christian life. And you're given it by trusting in Jesus. Afterwards, I heard someone say uh, to someone else, what did you think of that talk? And I said, oh, he's a big character, isn't he? It's a good talk, yes. But it, it was a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And I thought, no, it's not, because it's not a nut that he was cracking. It's a tough lump of iron that needs a sledgehammer because we keep tending to trust in what we do. It's so deep-rooted in us, this idea that we will make ourselves right. And so you must notice that what we're hearing this morning comes after verse 1. It all depends on verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, it's for people who've received God's mercy. And you receive it by trusting Jesus' death on the cross. You receive it by clinging to Christ as Saviour. Don't put the cart before the horse. It doesn't work. What you're hearing this morning isn't how to receive mercy. It's how to respond to mercy after you've received it. So have you received it? Have you cried out to God for it? Are you trusting not what you do, but what Jesus did, so that you can have God's mercy? That's the all-important question. Actually, if you haven't received God's mercy, that's more important than anything else I'm going to say the rest of this morning. You need to cry out to God because he sent his son to die so you could receive mercy. How do you respond once you have received that mercy? Well, the answer is in verse 9. You must respond by sincere love. Sincere love to God and to others. It must be sincere, not a show, not false. How do you tell if it's sincere? By the strength of your emotions? Well, I hope you have strong emotions, but that's not good enough. That doesn't show it's sincere. People can have strong emotions and it not be sincere, love. The rest of the paragraph shows us some ways we tell. Is our love sincere? Let's read it now. Verses 9 to 13. Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil... Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It might look like just a series of Unconnected sayings. But it's telling us this. Love must be sincere. So, firstly, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. See that there in verse 9. Now I remember reading quite a while ago in the news about a British man who went to the Philippines and he fell in love with a woman there, but she was already married. And he got himself in trouble with the law and he left the country. And if I've remembered rightly, uh, the news it was in the news, because if he went back, he would be in serious trouble with the law. And he was interviewed in the news, and he was completely bemused by this. How can I be in trouble with the law for loving someone? And that's typical of our society, isn't it? In our society, love is a feeling, and it mustn't be restrained, and there's no limits put. And love has nothing to do with laws in our society. But in the Bible, love is this, you don't do things that are bad for others and dishonouring to God, whatever you may feel. In our society, we have, we want love, not laws. But in the Bible, you put love into practice by keeping God's law. Oh yes, it's more than just doing things, but you put that love into practice by keeping God's law. But if you love God, it isn't just you keep the rules, right? It says, don't do this, I won't. It says, do that so I will. No, it's more than that. If you love God, you will. What does that verse say? Hate what is evil. That's a strong word, isn't it? Hate. It means you'll be repulsed by it. It's a word for a horse shying away from something. It doesn't want anything to do with it. It's not just here, another example, Psalm 97 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Because the Christian loves God, the Christian hates what is contrary to God, what is opposite to God. The Christian is not an apathetic, careless, not too bothered about it, either way sort of person. The Christian is not a, well I suppose I shouldn't sort of person. A Christian hates evil, is distressed by evil, isn't happy to watch evil as entertainment on TV. There's a test for you. Love must be sincere, so hate evil. But opposite to that, cling to what is good. The word here is, is a word like glue. In fact, it's a word used sometimes for the marriage bond, for the oneness there is in marriage. In other words, the Christian isn't someone who reluctantly, well, I suppose I should do it, I'll get on with it grudgingly. No, the Christian is someone who delightingly has, what good can I do? Is there some good I can do? And sticks to it like glue. What's a practical example of this? Well, that's easy. Jesus. There's a children's song, I don't suppose they sing it anymore, but it went like this. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But Jesus was not mild about evil. He hated it. He spoke fiercely against religious hypocrites. And he clung strongly to what is good. He hated what was evil. He clung to what was good, to live the life we should have lived, so he could die the death we deserve to die, so we should be like him. What is this good that we should cling to? says cling to what is good but it doesn't define what is good does it well yes it does that's the rest of the paragraph It's giving us some ways so love must be sincere hate what is evil cling to what is good love must be sincere so secondly be devoted to one another in brotherly love verse 10 be devoted to one another in brotherly love see it there Now, when it says brotherly, it's telling us this is about within the church. That's what's being described. The church is the Christian's new family. Christians are brothers and sisters to each other who are to love each other sincerely. And that means being devoted to each other. What is devoted like? How do you describe the word devoted? Well, I think this might help. Imagine a mother who has two children who need 24-hour care. And her time goes into them, being with them, feeding them, preparing medicine. Because she's doing that, there are other things maybe she'd like to do, but she doesn't do. And there might be other people she'd like to see, but she doesn't see. Because she gives those children priority. She's devoted to them. Maybe she gets tired, but she continues. And not just for a week, and not just for a month. But for year after year after year, can you imagine that? Well, some of you don't need to because you know who I'm thinking of. That's devotion. That's sincere love. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a lovely thing. That devotion. And our verse tells us, verse 10, that that's what we should be like with each other. Okay, we may not get to her standards, but we should be putting ourselves out. We should be making time for each other. Caring for each other. Giving your fellow Christians priority in your life. That means there's some other things you might want to do and you leave aside because you're devoted to those sitting around you now. That means you carry on doing it. You stick with your fellow Christians. The church isn't a club. You try for a while and then you get niggled about something. Oh, they're doing things that I don't like now. I'll clear off somewhere else. No, it's a family to stick to. To be devoted to. What's a practical example of this? Well, I've given you one, but I'll give you another. Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He gave up heaven for them. He gave up glory for them. In the end, he even gave up his life for them. We should be worshipping that example of devotion, but not just worshipping, we should also be like him. Love must be sincere, so here's a third one. Honour one another. See it there in verse 10? Honour one another above yourselves. Oh, it's a bit questionable how to translate it actually, it could be outdo each other in giving honour, but whatever it is, it's certainly saying honour one another. Now, think of someone you think worthy of honour. It could be someone who's devoted their lives to doing good to others. And you think, there's a person worthy of honour. It could be a great achiever. A great brain like Stephen Hawkins. A great sportsman who's excelled. It could be someone in high position like the Queen. But I expect you can think, I hope you can think, can't you? Of Someone you think is worthy of honour. Now if you met him or met her, how would you show your respect? Well surely you'd be polite, wouldn't you? That would be the most basic level. You'd be polite. You would listen carefully. You would show interest. If you disagreed with them, you'd do it very carefully, wouldn't you? Remembering there's a good chance they're right and you're wrong. You'd take their words seriously. You'd show by your manner that you're pleased to spend time with them. Well, the Bible says, do that for your fellow Christians. That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Show honour. Do it for your fellow Christians. Later this morning is an opportunity to do this verse in how you react with brothers and sisters in a crowded room. That's good, isn't it? You've got an opportunity to do this verse. Around you are people As you you mill around in this crowded room, around you will be people who are children of the king, adopted by God, loved from eternity. So when you're about to barge past them, just stop and think and treat them like royalty. Isn't that what we should do? Isn't that what the verse means? Now, of course, honour also means... You'll be careful, not just when you're with them, but when you're not with them, how you talk about them. I'll read you from James's letter, chapter 3. <coughs> he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And if that should not be about men made in God's image... How much more true about people who are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Honouring them means not just when you're with them, but when their backs are turned. When you're far away from them. How do you talk about them? Oh yes, sometimes people need correcting, but they never need gossiping about. And even when they need correcting, do it with honour shown to them. What's a practical example of this? Of course, it's Jesus. A despised woman washes his feet and the Pharisee looks down on her and Jesus commends her to the proud Pharisee. A Gentile centurion shows faith and the Jewish crowd around don't think much of Gentiles and Jesus speaks up for him. He who is so far above us, he didn't look down on the little people. He honoured others. What a remarkable Lord of Lords he is. Think of that, he's Lord of Lords, he's King of Kings and he honoured the leper, the blind person, the immoral woman even. Be like him. Love must be sincere, so, fourthly, never be lacking in zeal. Verse 11. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now this paragraph is about love for fellow Christians. It is in three or four chapters that are just about all about relationships within the church between us. And yet it's not just a human-centered thing. It is the overflow of a heart that loves God and is eager to serve the Lord. I reckon if you If you know many Christians, and if you think about those you know who are enthusiastic for the Lord, aren't they nearly always also people who care for others, who love their fellow Christians? Well, my experiences they have been, and I expect it is yours too. The two go together. Enthusiasm for the Lord and love for fellow Christians. Now, in verse 11, we've got this word fervor. Do you see that there in verse 11? Fervor. It's an interesting word. It's from the word for boiling water. Picture a saucepan, and in it, it's on your hob in your kitchen, and in it is water boiling. It's restless, isn't it? It's fierce. It's bubbling up. And it's saying that should be us. There are people in our town, an awful lot of them, who don't know Jesus. And we should be restless to do something about it. The name of Jesus is blasphemed every day. And and we should be like fiercely boiling water about it, bubbling up with indignation that our Lord is dishonoured. That should be us. Or are you like a pan of lukewarm water? Still... Quiet, motionless, laid back about Jesus. Not really excited about serving the Lord. Well, the picture in verse 11 is this. You need the fire of the Holy Spirit to get under your saucepan and to heat you up. That's what you need. It could be translated as set on fire by the Spirit. That's what you need. What's a practical example of this? You've guessed, haven't you, who I'm going to say. It's Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit without measure. And the zeal, zeal for the Lord's house ate him up. Nothing laid back about Jesus. He was living the life we should have lived so he could die the death we deserve to die so we should be made like him. Love must be sincere, so, fifthly, be joyful in hope. Verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. What has this got to do with sincere love? Am I pushing things to suggest that this whole paragraph is about sincere love? No, I don't think I am. Interestingly, in the original, it doesn't say love must be sincere, it just says sincere love, as if it's a heading. What's this got to do with sincere love? It's got a lot to do with sincere love. Because sincere love means devotion. And we've seen that devotion is hard work. It's self-denying. It's putting others first. It's putting yourself out. Think of that example of the devoted mother. Hard work. But being a Christian and having love doesn't take away that deep human I'd like some comfort, please. I'd like something to look forward to for myself, please doesn't take that away, doesn't make that wrong. So you can't keep going in sincere love just by your enthusiasm and your energy and your activity. You need something to look forward to. You can't keep going in sincere love unless you have a firm grasp of this gospel hope. Remember where you're heading, to be with Christ. Remember, you can miss out on comfort here, and you won't be the loser for it because you've got limitless comfort ahead. And so it says, be joyful in hope. You can't have this sincere love unless you've got the hope. Because you'll just give up. You need something to look forward to. This hope can keep you going. What does it say in verse 12? It can keep you going patiently in affliction. It can keep you going enduring in when it's hard work to love. Of course, you won't without prayer, so it tells us be faithful in prayer or literally persist in prayer. You won't keep the hope and you won't keep going in the afflictions unless you're persisting in prayer. Do you see, love isn't just trying harder to be nice. If anyone's listening to this and thinks, right, I will go away and try harder to be nice, you won't manage it. No, it's it's talking about something deeper than that. Love must be nourished and fed by hope, patience and prayer. Sincere love requires a firm grip on the gospel and a close walk with God. What's a practical example of this? You know the answer, don't you? It's Jesus. What does it say about him? For the joy that was ahead of him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. He was going to be with his father. The father he knew because he spent those times in prayer with him. That's how he managed to keep going in his costly love to you and me. Because of the joy that was ahead of him. Funnily enough, the joy of being with us. Isn't that strange? He did it for us. He did it so we should be like him. Love must be sincere. So, lastly, share with God's people who are in need. Verse 13. Verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, I don't think this needs explanation, actually. I think if we're honest, we know what it means. It doesn't need explanation. But I think we do need to be urged to get on and do it. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament law, the Israelites were told how they should care for the poor so there wouldn't be any poor in the Old Testament church, the Israelites. Then the Old Testament prophets came along and they denounced the people who were living in luxury while there were poor people there. There shouldn't be any poor while you're living in luxury. And they denounced those people. And then you get the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet, if you think about it and understand. And he told the crowd, if you've got two coats, give one of them to the person who has none. Now, of course, he was the forerunner of Jesus. And then along came Jesus and he said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And he founded a church, a church characterised by what? In Acts we read, people giving so that no one was in need. They were doing what Old Testament Israel was supposed to do, make sure there are no needy people in the community of believers. And if you're in Corinth, which is rich, don't say, well, the people, the Christians in Jerusalem don't count because they're miles away. So the letters of the New Testament say to those churches, give. So there is equality in the church, and not just in the local church. It seems to me that while there are many things hard to understand in the Bible, and many things a bit unclear and we can argue about them, there are a few things much clearer than this. That if you are living in luxury, while you know that there are Christians living in poverty and need, you're out of line with the Bible. If you can see your way around that, tell me afterwards, because I can't. If you're living in luxury, while well, you know there are Christians living in need, and you're doing nothing about it, you're out of line with the Bible. Now this isn't communism, by the way. Communism says, what is yours is mine, to be taken by force. Christianity says, what is mine is yours, to be shared out of love. And one of the needs within this local church, within Hollywell, is loneliness, isn't it? There are lonely people. And one of the answers to loneliness is the end of verse 13. Have a look at the end of verse 13. Practice hospitality. Practice. It's literally pursue hospitality. I think that's helpful to remember. Pursue hospitality. Now, this isn't a come-dine-with-me style competition, who can provide the best meals. It's about company, not cooking. It's about fellowship, not fine dining. A person I've quoted several times over the years is called Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. What a strange, an unusual name for an unusual woman. She was a leader of the LGBT community at Syracuse University where she was a professor of English and a leading feminist. And she was remarkably converted while she was doing academic research, which brought her into contact with Christians who she was against. She was researching these people she's against. And she was converted through their witness and the word of God they brought to her. And she repented of her sins. And she is clear that her previous lifestyle and identity were wrong. It's very clear it's both her lifestyle and her identity were wrong. But she also says this, that LGBT community was a very good example of hospitality. In fact, she says she learnt, she's in a sense learnt her Christian hospitality from that life back then. Because every evening someone in that community had an open home so that no one had to be alone. That's interesting, isn't it? So there would be no one needy among them, needy of company. There was always an open home, every evening. That's a big challenge to us, isn't it? Because I reckon we're nowhere near up to that standard, of that group of sinners, and they are sinners, but we're not up to their standard. We have plenty of people who are on their own on a Sunday, let alone every day. More hospitality would really make a big difference to this church. Sometimes people ask, how can I serve in the church? Oh, there's loads of ways you can serve, but here's one that would really make a big difference. Giving hospitality. Just inviting someone around your house, spending time with them. Now, I know people's situation affects how they can do this, and we can't all be pressured to do it in the same way, but verse 13 says, pursue hospitality. In other words, seek out what way Could you be doing this? This is a very practical paragraph, verses 9 to 13. I don't think it's hard to understand, but it does require us to do it. And this is how we do verse 1. Do remember where it's all come from. Verse 1. Therefore I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. Then Paul goes on to tell us how we do it, including verses 9 to 13. That means whatever singing, whatever praying, whatever listening you do here at church, you're not a real worshipper if you don't do verses 9 to 13. Love must be sincere. So put into practice what you've heard this morning. But if you're not a Christian, don't put the cart before the horse. Have you remembered that? That's the most important thing for you this morning. Don't put the cart before the horse. First you need to cry out to God for his mercy.